and welcome to the dirt i'm anna and i'm amber and today we are busting some myths wide open we've selected a choice few misconceptions or misunderstandings about the ancient world and about how archaeology works and we thought we'd bust them let's get busting it makes me feel good <laughs> bustin makes me feel good who who are you gonna call myth no but well we're canceled. sort of myth busters <laughs> all right anna what's up first myth number one if this were the neolithic we'd both be dead by now life expectancy was 35 tops myth oh god <laughs> this is going so good <laughs> We're two minutes in. <laughs> We've already fallen apart. Um, so, yes, while it is true that life expectancy was about 33 in the Paleolithic, when people say life expectancy, they don't really mean life expectancy. Like when they're talking about how old was old in a society, those quotes around old, um, that number is actually determined by lifespan. Yeah, it's two different terms that yeah, we're talking two, about. Two different, two different numbers. They're calculated differently, and demographers use that. Demographers are the people that graph the deems, so they're people <laughs> that measure populations and and do statistics around it. They study um, damn deems. <laughs> damn deems, though. Damn deems, though. Um, and so, lifespan and life expectancy have two different purposes. So the life expectancy is an average age of death for all members within a given population. So within the, the given sample size. That figure includes all deaths. So deaths in war or combat, industrial accidents, childbirth, shark attacks, infectious diseases, and in some yes. And in some calculations, that also includes stillborn births. Oh, I can imagine so, that that spikes the number up and yeah. skews it. Yeah, but, but when you include all of those deaths in the number of life expectancy, the result is in almost every case throughout human history and across geography, a terrifyingly low number. Now, generally speaking, over all of human history and geography, if you make it past birth, you've got a pretty good shot. Um, and according to the World Health Organization, it's still that way. So in 2016, 75% of all under five deaths so 75 percent of all persons under the age of five who die um 4.2 million of them die within the first year of life so if you make it to five years old your life expectancy increases dramatically and then after that if you make it through bearing a child if you are a person with a uterus or if you make it through combat sort of no matter who you are you're doing great so the, huh. so the hardest things that you can do as a human in terms of survival is birth someone or get birthed. So if you have done both of those things, my God, Hi, you mom. have overcome the odds. Yes. Hello, mom. Um, and so there is a chart on infoplease.com. Um, which uses, we will link to on our yeah, show notes. Yeah. Which is now on our website. Hey. Yeah. So we... We're coming on up. Um, so there's a chart that uses CDC, so the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the Department of Health and Human Services. DHHS. Uh, DHHS. Using that data and comparing it against census data in the United States, um, this chart shows how life expectancy fluctuates as one ages. So in this chart, it tells you if you are this old, this is how many years you can expect to have left. 
Oh God. So yeah. So it's Ooh. from, yeah, it's from the mid 19th century through I think 2011. Uh, yeah, 2011, 1850 to 2011. And so some very big things happened in that period of time, but it breaks it down into very broad categories of white males, white females, non-white males, and non-white females. Okay, I see some problems with that, but keep going. Right, yeah, but, um, right, so it is, yeah, but if, but even within those very broad categories, there are differences, um, but basically the older you get, the longer you'll live. Yeah, and there's this perception that the farther back you go in time, the shorter the life expectancy. But that's actually not true. I mean, partially based on this sort of confusion between life expectancy and lifespan that that we see that you just talked about. But for example, the lifespan of Neanderthals and early anatomically modern humans in Europe was about the same. So about 25% of both populations survived past the age of 40. So yes, your maximum lifespan is likely to be shorter if you are in a population that experiences food insecurity or doesn't have access to healthcare, things like vaccines and assisted births and uh, is subject to poverty. But um, the impact of these factors on your likelihood to reach old age, whatever that means for your population, you see those much more starkly in life expectancy rather than lifespan. Yeah. And so um, the so the World Health Organization has what they call the Global Health Observatory, and we'll also link to that. And so that data is broken down by country, so by you know current political states, um, and it reflects life expectancy at birth. And so that's what we're we're telling you because once you make it past birth, you did it. You made you, it. You you you've done really great. Um, and so those are high level numbers, and so they reflect an average. Um, and the other thing about averages, uh, they don't reflect disparities within populations. Populations that are poor, rural, or are ethnic or racial minorities within the, st- the country, they can face extreme disparities. And mm-hmm. so something, so this year, um, Serena Williams and Beyonce Knowles Carter both publicly spoke about their own like terrifying childbirth stories. Um, it opened up a conversation that probably is long overdue, but the conversation around maternal mortality in the United States and how in our country there are populations that have much higher infant and maternal mortality rates than than other populations, but it all gets smoothed over. Right. Um, you don't and- see it in the averages. Yeah, and so um, I'll include a link to a really frightening but informative article about that. And so that's something that we should talk about maternity at some point. And, we will. We will for sure. And birthing and being birthed. The miracle <laughs> of life. I mean, specifically birthing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but there are old people. So like 25% of populations survive past the age of 40 whether mm-hmm. ye be a neanderthal or a homo sapiens mm-hmm. um and so that means they were old people they were out there they, they were uh there's evidence for elderly disabled and healed people as in they were injured but then were cared for and healed in the archaeological record so and those go way way back so evidence of healed injuries and this is 
the most likely scenario is because once you get injured in a, a hunter gatherer situation, it's unlikely if the injury is severe enough that you're going to be able to fend for yourself. You're certainly not going to be able to hunt for yourself very well if you've got a broken arm or a, a smashed in head. So these are instances of individuals being cared for by other members of a social group. And in this really early example, um, we can see the Saint Césaire Neanderth Neanderthal skeleton. I was Neanderthal. Neanderthal. <laughs> Is that French Neanderthal? No, it's a, a Neanderthal skeleton from the site of Saint Césaire in France. Um, and it's the skeleton of a young individual dated to around 36,000 years ago. And um, a digital reconstruction of the skull revealed a healed fracture in the cranium. So basically the the bony scars on the head are remnants of a skull injury inflicted with a sharp implement which healed so and and the article very dryly states which was presumably directed toward the individual during an act of interpersonal violence like yeah yes what's a bony scar like a scar in the bone so when you okay. break your bone there okay. it, and it then heals New bone grows in, but you can see a okay. scar in the bone the same way that you can see oh, a scar in, okay. in tissue. Yeah. 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 Right. Especially if it's not set well or if it's not on yeah. a limb that you can then set back into place and have it right. heal nicely. Often there's sort of bony overgrowth that yeah, you can see. Yeah, I guess see. I always thought that you could tell because like there's a disruption like not that there's like scar tissue whether that's bone tissue like scar bone tissue i yeah, thought exactly that it was that. yeah right right i just i had never thought about that because i guess i was just used to being like no i i see i see where it broke because it's crooked now like kind yeah, of yeah i mean that's that's part of it but it, yeah when bone regrows it okay. often doesn't smooth over perfectly where the break was and a lot of times if it's not set correctly you get some pretty gnarly remodeling on the bone yeah so um, it's called a bony scar okay cool well this article called it a bony scar a bony scar yeah. yeah so obviously since this was the skeleton of a young individual um this person didn't live much past their youth and and presumably much past this injury but the injury did heal which means that they were cared for and survived what was likely probably a pretty debilitating injury given that it fractured the skull yeah so, um, wow. and there's more of the same also, um, very early, also a Neanderthal, this time at the site of Shanidar, uh, in what is now Iraqi Kurdistan. And this, um, uh, Neanderthal's remains were uncovered in 1957, but have been extensively studied since then. And, um, this individual, this, this poor guy suffered numerous injuries. So, uh, the specimen is called Shanidar one, meaning it was the, the first, skeleton to be discovered at Shanidar. And uh, he suffered a severe blow to the side of the face at an early age, a breakage and the eventual amputation of the right arm at the elbow, serious wounds to the right leg, as well as a progressive deterioration and loss of his hearing's function. So we're going to throw a picture of the Shanidar one skull up on uh, social media, and you will be able to see that there is extensive sort of disfigurement in the skull as a result of of healing and regrowth of the bone and not only that as the bone healed um the injury caused bony growths in Shanidar one's ear canals as a result of that head trauma and Good that would grief. have resulted that's an understatement are you looking at the looking, picture i'm looking I at just... the pictures now 
oh my gosh. <laughs> um, so that would have resulted in major hearing loss, which if you are a hunter gatherer, never mind that your your head smashed in and your arms gone and your leg is broken, if you can't hear, you're at a severe disadvantage. So this person was cared for throughout his life because of multiple injuries that we can see on his skeleton that occurred over the course of his lifespan. So he must have had care from others, which is sort of touching, but also poor guy. Yeah. Rough life. Gosh. And so is is um, anything about an act of interpersonal violence? This, or could I just... No, like, I... We don't know if this is interpersonal violence or just like hunting. run over by an animal. Maybe. Uh, I mean, there's lots of ways to have accidents. Oh, particularly clumsy. Oh gosh. Well, no, I'm not saying he was a clumsy <laughs> Neanderthal. I just, I just mean like. No, I yeah, yeah. No. Who that's... knows how these injuries were incurred? I'm not willing to speculate. <laughs> Something else that's going to make you make some faces and noises. No, I'm all about uh, this. Trepanning. <laughs> So this is uh, a practice that has been done in nearly every part of the world throughout history. The earliest evidence that we know of dates to about 7,000 years ago in the Neolithic in what is now Sudan. And trepanning is the practice of drilling through the skull uh, into the brain, not like into the tissue of the brain, but drilling through the skull for the purpose of relieving pressure on the brain, or in some cases, it's a ritual act. Um, sometimes it's done to release demons that are thought to be in the person's head. It was used to remove skull fragments from the brain after a traumatic accident for drainage, that kind of thing. And um, there are multiple examples of trepanation scars on skulls that have at least partially healed, meaning that the individual survived at least a few weeks after the injury and the trepanation. From the Renaissance until the beginning of the 19th century, trepanation was routinely used to treat head wounds, and into the 18th century, it was used to treat epilepsy and mental disorders. Yep. So if you're hearing voices, cut a hole and let them out. I mean, don't. the philosophy. I mean, don't. <laughs> no, don't. We're don't do that. Definitely don't. But that's what that's what people thought. Because it's a hole in your head. Yeah. Like just the fact that you managed to survive getting a hole in your head. Yeah, for how And then that long. hole got smaller over time and you didn't yeah. die. Like I cannot understate how amazing that is. It's very, very cool. Yeah. So yeah. And you you don't have nerves in your brain, but you sure do have them on your skull. Oh, you got them scalp. all around it. Yep. Oh boy. Yeah, no, it can't have been great. Yeah. So. Yeah. So moving on to a different topic, perception of disability. So that's something that we rarely see talked about in in common discussions of antiquity. So, um, you know, think about statues that you typically see in a museum or or your sort of basic 101 course or just sort of basic perception of what people were like in antiquity. Um, but something we do see quite a bit um, in different places throughout the world is dwarfism. And we see evidence of dwarfism as a motif, as like a um, something connected with spiritualism and uh, and worship, but also just um, record of, of people with dwarfism. So in uh, a case that I read about from Egypt's third intermediate period, so uh, around 664 BCE. It's a burial that um, 
contains a skeleton that is a probable case of pituitary dwarfism. So in this case, this is also called proportional dwarfism. And my understanding is that this is an individual with small stature. So uh, something like not enough growth hormone, but unlike other forms of dwarfism, the the limbs remain proportional to the body and, and things like that. So this individual was buried in the same way as adjacent burials in a family group burial. And there was no evidence of differential treatment. And there was no evidence on this individual of physiological stress or illness. So whoever this person was, they were cared for throughout their life. They didn't experience, you know, extreme hunger or deprivation. And right. so this, this is a real, a real sort of peephole into the social perceptions of dwarfism in ancient Egypt and suggests that these people led normal, if not necessarily privileged, lives. Socially, this person in Egypt may not have been disabled, despite maybe having physical impairments. And that's really interesting. And and also what it made me think of, um, Egyptology is not something that's firmly in my wheelhouse. It's something I know a little bit about. But there's an Egyptian god, Bess, who's a dwarf, right? Often portrayed as sort of like a jolly dwarf, mischievous kind of guy. Yeah. Um, so this isn't, this isn't uncommon, this perception of dwarfism as indicative of sort of mystical or, or shaman or privileged, like not, not socially privileged, but somehow spiritually privileged status. We see that again in ancient Mesoamerica. So there is a lot of figural representation of dwarfism and and other different sort of physical anomalies in Mesoamerican art. So you see enlarged heads, spinal deformities, facial abnormalities. Um, And so it's thought that such individuals were thought to have kind of a special status in these societies. So in Mayan artwork from Guatemala, individuals with dwarfism are seen often as attendants to the ruler or the king. Um, They hold high positions in the court. And this suggests to an author of an article that we will put up on our reading list that the Mesoamericans may have believed that individuals born with physical differences would have been celebrated as having a special connection with the gods, which is really kind of a departure from what we think of maybe in our society with with the disabled and and sort of complex and problematic treatments of, of the disabled and perception of the disabled. Are we equating here existence with prevalence? No, no, no. But what okay, we are great. what we are saying is when individuals displaying dwarfism are shown in Mayan art, they are shown in some sort of high status okay. portrayal. So when okay. they are shown, they're shown as attendants to the king okay. or as as in the case of Egyptian portrayals, deities or right. um, okay. or you know, there was that that queen of Punt who yeah. was a dwarf, Eddie, Queen of Punt, and she's often shown as a dwarf, and and was she was highly respected. Yeah, I think. but it's but it's also possibly Punt was shown as this like crazy wacko world. It's like Bizarro Egypt, where like <laughs> it's like here, but everyone's little. Well, like they don't have a pharaoh; they have a queen, and Whoa. like she's like she's short and like an uggo, and like it's like so it's it's mm, maybe okay. I don't know. Yeah, mm. so I don't I don't yeah I don't I don't know about the queen of punt, but I I hear you. I, I I'm picking up what you're putting down. Okay, so I wasn't sure. You're if smelling we just what have... I'm stepping in. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I like that one. Okay. Number two. Okay. You ready? I am. Oh, speaking of the queen of punt being all short and stuff. Right. So number two, <laughs> everyone was short in the past. Like, like Napoleon short. Ah, double myth. Yeah. So first of all, Napoleon wasn't that short. He was yeah. about five foot six. So that's, that's pretty average. That's a little taller than me. A couple, couple inches taller than me. Um, me. Yes. I'm you're, above you're, average, a, you're a tall drink of water. So the, the trope of, of Napoleon as an angry short Frenchie comes from two sources. So first of all, historically, French inches, which I see now that you have, you <laughs> have called Frenches. <laughs> Merci. Merci beaucoup. Uh, so f- the French inches were different from the inches that we use now. So uh, the French continue to be perverse and difficult. Just kidding. We love you. Hey, France. Hello, um, listeners in France, which bonjour. I know exist thanks to the analytics on our website. Salut. Uh, so Napoleon's height was recorded in French inches as five foot two. In inches nowadays, he's about five six. And the second source is a British political cartoon, circa 1815, by James Gilray. And this is in the era that political cartoons were accompanied by a speech bubble with a paragraph of dialogue. It's like not exactly snappy, but this one riffs on, on Gulliver's travels, which had been written maybe 70 years earlier. And, um, so this has King George the third holding tiny little Napoleon on his palm. So those two countries had been at war. So this is a political cartoon from the English, the British perspective. And he's looking at him through a, a telescope, an eyeglass, a spyglass. Um, and he says to him, I cannot but conclude you to be one of the most pernicious little odious reptiles that nature ever suffered to crawl upon the surface of the earth. Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> Lizing. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> I'm glad you like that. So, no. Uh, in... The Middle Ages and beyond, which I feel like is when we we tend to see the the perception of like, oh, they were much smaller then. So there's actually uh, not really evidence that supports the idea that as you go back farther in time, people start shrinking. So here are some of the maybe misinterpreted pieces of evidence. First of all, in in historical houses from you know the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, you often see quite short doors and small windows. So people think, oh, well, to go through those doors, they must have been short people. Nope. Doors were expensive. People can duck. So having a sunken floor, like stepping down into your house, rather than having high walls and a high door, uh, that's cheaper. Yeah. So, and, and also I've heard with, um, so in like old mosques and things, like you have mm-hmm. the lower door um, as... I was told that you, so you duck, so you're, you're showing oh, in, in deference. Yeah. 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 So it's like this thing that reminds you, like, don't go like walking in there. Like don't go strutting into God's house. <laughs> yeah. 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 I've also, um, it is amazing to me how many people, uh, look at like excavated foundations. And so if you have like two bricks high of, mm-hmm. of the wall, Oh, so no. you got like a foot and a half. They're like, oh, they're so small. Like, that's like, not the no, wall, you guys. That's, that's not the wall. Like, <laughs> it fell down. The wall's that's gone. why they left. 
Yeah. Small walls do not small people <laughs> make. Um, A study conducted at Ohio State University based on skeletal data from 30 previous studies. So it's a a metadata study. Um, It showed that men living uh, during the 9th to 11th centuries, so Middle Ages, had an average height of roughly 5 foot 8. So that's pretty standard. Um, And then average height steadily declined until it reached a low point of five foot five and a half in the 17th and 18th centuries rising again through the 19th century and then only reaching that previous five foot eight average um, in the first half of the 20th century so height is primarily to do with three things your genetics your lifestyle and your nutrition and and lifestyle and nutrition are kind of intertwined but genetics don't really shift much there isn't going to be drastic height related genetic change recorded in in the human uh dna record so height is is very relative but depending on so we see this this dip in human height uh around the 17th and 18th centuries so that's when the industrial age started and i should i should note that this study conducted was uh based on european data so this is the height of the industrial or the start of the industrial revolution and so People were flooding from the countryside into the cities. Massive populations of people were accumulating, but uh, malnutrition was rampant. There was a huge wage gap. There was a huge population of of poor, and there was, you know, rampant illness. And people were not getting enough to eat, and that's going to affect a population's height. Um, well, and also, people weren't getting enough sunlight. Yeah, there were clouds because of you have, smog. Like, well, and like, and then working indoors when you're like, yes, bunch of bunch of weedy chappies. What? Yes, what what? <laughs> Terrible. Oh, oh yeah, we all saw the um, the the opening, the the opening ceremony to the London Olympics. We know the. Do you, do you remember that where they're like and now the, we're doing the industrial revolution and it was oh my god it was it very was like, mary poppinsy and it, it was like was, hello chaps now the queen's gonna parachute in oh that turns into weird like, australian and southern which i mean is part of the british legacy yeah um so yes height is relative but on average human height from neanderthals forward uh has stayed pretty constant and, uh, you know, Neanderthals were probably around 5'5 five five for an adult male, but they were probably also pretty consistently under survival stress because being a hunter-gatherer is tough. And they were <laughs> sort of built short and stocky because they were dealing with chilly European temperatures. Um, so, okay, here's one. We know we can figure out exactly when something happened in the past. Myth. Right. Okay, but also. All right, also strap in. Put your learning helmets on. (laughs) We're going to talk about radiocarbon dating and the calibration curve. No, hang on. Don't leave. (laughs) So first of all, what is radiocarbon dating? Okay. Remember high school chemistry? There are (laughs) elements that make up everything in our world. These are the, the jumble of letters that populate that periodic table of elements that you vaguely remember. Or if you're younger than high school age, you haven't encountered yet. It's coming. Hang on. Um, An isotope (laughs) is a version of a particular element, but with a different number of neutrons. So those are the neutral charge particles in the middle of an atom. This imbalance of neutrons means that there isn't enough energy to hold the nucleus of the atom together. And so the atoms of the isotope are unstable. So if you remember that from chemistry class, 
atoms don't like to be unstable. Um, they will discharge or gain energy in order to attain stability. And so an isotope's unstable neutron arrangement means that it will dissipate extra energy by spontaneously releasing radiation in the form of alpha, beta, and gamma rays. As an isotope releases radiation, it gradually changes into a different stable element. So, for example, when an atom of the unstable isotope of carbon, so C14, which is annoyingly written 14C, but it is what it is, and I didn't make it up. Um, so when, when C14 releases energy, it becomes an atom of nitrogen-14, which is a stable isotope of nitrogen. The neutrons are happy and stable, and they don't want to go anywhere, and there's no more energy that needs to be released. So if we know how long it takes a certain amount of a radioactive isotope to change into its stable counterpart, then we can do that math backwards. So what I mean by that is if we know how much of the isotope has decayed, we can calculate how long it would have taken for that to happen, because... Fortunately, the rate of decay for each type of isotope is a constant. So this gives us something called a half-life, and that's the amount of time it takes for the half the amount of a radioactive isotope to decay into its stable form. So it's a different length of time for every isotope. For carbon-14, it's around 5,730 years. So let's say that there's 100 units of carbon-14, and we've waited 5,730 years, half that carbon-14 will have decayed into nitrogen. So the half-life means 100% decays into 50%. And then and if you wait another 5,730 years, 25%, and so on, and so on, and so on. So it's a lot of math with fractions, gross, mm. but carbon dating can give us exact timelines in archaeological settings, right? Nope. Right? Nope. No, nope. Sadly, nope. no. This is the part where it gets interesting. To me, the person that failed chemistry for humanities majors. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not the case. The amount of carbon in a dead thing that was once a living thing depends on how much atmospheric carbon that thing took in during its lifetime. And the amount of carbon in the atmosphere hasn't always been constant throughout history. So for one thing, back in the 1940s and 50s, uh, the USA did a whole lot of nuclear testing with perhaps not a lot of forethought, and that messed with carbon levels in the atmosphere, and so did the upswing in carbon emissions with the onset of the Industrial Age. So to change a radiocarbon age into a calendar age and to know exactly when in history it correlates to, that requires mathematical calibration, and that isn't always exact. So radiocarbon dating isn't a perfect method, but it's still really, really cool. And it's important, and it gives us lots of valuable information. It's just not like a pin in a map. It's more of like throwing a, a water balloon at a map. You get yeah. kind of a, a scattershot. Uh, you get sort of a, uh, an idea of where in history uh, something is from, but you, you're not going to pinpoint it to like last Tuesday, you know. It's not going to be as accurate as, as 50,000 years ago on a Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even in much closer periods of time. Um, so having something that happened 3,000 years ago or something. Um, even that, like when we have calendar dates, like when we have a calendar, even that's wonky. Um, and you don't have to calibrate anything. So you know that King such and such conquered the land of Huzuma Fudge in the 17th year of King Witsit. And, like, you know that. So you have their calendar figured out, and you know you can 
when you have these historical societies. But you have to pin that calendar down onto our calendar. And so sometimes these pins, sort of to fix them in a time that we understand with our calendar. This is getting, Mm -hmm. this is freaking you out yet? Yeah, Um, multiple timelines kind of scare me. Yeah. Um, And so it'll be like an observed astronomical phenomenon. So it'll be like a solar eclipse or a supernova. Those, those are... Those are big those are, players. Those are great because we can figure out when those happened. Yeah, we know when those happened. We know when solar eclipse ha- eclipses happen. So we can calculate all those things. Um, and then you have to line it up. But where they line up do- isn't always agreed upon. And that can have huge implications for things happening elsewhere in the world. But we'll save all that. We'll save all that for another episode because it, it gets me going. Okay. okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. And so um, our last one. So we can tell, like when we look in, in burials and graves, we can tell if somebody was male or female based on the stuff that was found with them. Because weapons go with the men and jewelry goes with the women. Myth. And also problematic. Also, also pretty reductive, yes. Yeah. So sexing a skeleton. Oh, no. No. It's not, it's not what you think. This is a family podcast. We got to take a quick detour and talk about sex versus gender. So in anthropology and archaeology, sex refers to the biological sex of an individual as determined by their DNA. So an individual with two X chromosomes is designated female, an individual with an X and a Y is designated male. Gender, on the other hand, uh, refers to the social-cultural differences placed on those biological differences by a given culture. So this can vary, and it's subjective. So... In this instance, we are going to be referring to the sex of skeletons. So the individual is not alive, and in most cases, they didn't leave a record of how they self-identified, and it's much more difficult to know their gender. So there are a number of markers on the human skeleton that can help us determine whether the individual was biologically male or female. And for this, we use the term sexual dimorphism to describe differences between male and female physiology. And in lots of animal species, this is much more pronounced, but it's still present in humans, even if it's not as as evident as the case of um, Fuzzy the eagle, who's an eagle here at the Raptor Center at UC Davis. And uh, she has a cage companion who's a male, and I think his name is Grasshopper. And he's he's eagle-sized, like he's he's about... <laughs> two feet tall fuzzy is is the best euphemism (laughs) i don't know if he's her mate like they just share it they share a cage i I don't remember they're yeah they're roommates um but fuzzy is like four feet tall she's massive and this is the case a lot of times in birds of prey is that the female is much larger than the male oh because she's got to do all that hunting yeah well yeah and so and it it kind of goes the other way too in different species so um in lots of primate species you'll see that the male is much bigger than the female um things like a lion has a mane and a lioness doesn't you know these are all examples of sexual dimorphism so for humans there are uh four major features of skeletal remains that have clues for sexing an individual and these are the skull the pelvis the teeth DNA. So I'm mostly going to talk about the pelvis. So in general, males tend to be bigger in their skeletons. Females tend to be smaller. That said, it's a whole spectrum because your skeletal makeup and robusticity depends on your hormones. And those are different for everyone. So they're always going to be... I got a big old skeleton. (laughs) I'm big boned. There are always going to be more robust females and more delicate males. So 
if you are trying to determine the sex of an individual from the skeleton, it's great to have multiple lines of evidence. And if you have a whole skeleton to work with, awesome. But in archaeology, that's not always what you get. So it's good that there are different parts of the skeleton that contain information. So the pelvis is a really great set of clues, and it makes sense that female pelvises are differently engineered than male pelvises because female pelvises are designed to eject a baby. So there are several different features of the pelvis, including its width and various angles and notches in in the actual structure of the pelvis. Um, and if you want to learn the basics of forensic anthropology, we're going to include some great reading materials on the website and in the Facebook group. And it's awesome. It's like detective work. You get to put together pieces of who a person was and you use their body as the set of clues. And it's cool stuff. And I could go on for hours, but... We have other but stuff if to I talk don't get about. to talk about high, middle, and low chronology, you don't get to talk about. This is an equal opportunity partnership. Yes. We both exactly. We both get to cut each other off <laughs> when we veer into the woods. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, I kind of meant weeds. We veer into the weeds. I mean, is that the expression? Yeah, you. Yeah, you can't see the forest for the weeds. Yeah, yeah. The parrot in wolf's clothing. Okay, let's keep going. Okay, all right, and so. Um, the other part of my 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 premise, my precept up there was um, so using grave goods to determine who's in the grave. Um, that's something that was used for a long time by archaeologists um, who said that um, this one like, has a necklace. It's a this, lady. Yep, it's a lady because it's got <laughs> this skeleton's a lady because she's got a bow on her head and <laughs> and things like that. And so <laughs> there's a really there's a, there's a very interesting example of um, re-examining evidence and realizing that conclusions were much murkier than well the the reality is much murkier than the original conclusions and so um, at the site of Tepe Marlik, which is in Iran, modern day Iran, modern day Iran, don't mean Iranian plateau, and in the second millennium BCE, there was um, an ahistorical society there so that means they have no written records of their own so again we're in this this place where we don't have a sense of nobody's going to be like my name's Janie and I'm a lady like you don't have that like you don't have anything like that so <laughs> you also um, and in this um and also since you're all very close to the Caspian Sea um the climate is not great for and then the soil in which they were were buried uh, not great for preservation um, so the skeletal remains weren't in super great shape when they were excavated. Um, I don't know. They were excavated in the 60s. But what they did, um, the original excavators went through and they said, like, oh, this one's got a bunch of jewelry. This one's got weapons, jewelry, ladies, um, weapons, men. Sounds and like the then, 60s. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah. So it was like madmen of archaeology. Did you say um, this? Did they have the skeletons to check against? Like, did they have the skeletons associated no, with the grave goods? The, no, I don't. Okay, so don't they weren't know. sexing the skeletons and then saying, "Well, this correct. was correct." Right. Okay. Yeah. So because they weren't preserved well, and so I don't know. I don't think they okay. had complete skeletons. I don't know that they had a specialist on on staff at the okay, time. Okay, so this is just going over the distribution of the various types of grave goods. Yeah, when the study sort of showed what was there it turns out that there was a lot of gray area so you had a lot of jewelry and weapons or you would have jewelry and some you'd have weapons and others and then also there were um there seemed to be a few burials that were 
multiple individuals. And so there would be male and female. Is this where um, this fantastic pie chart comes in? Oh, my God. And so this is the other reason why I remembered this thing from a few years ago is that I was scrolling through it the first time I read it um, because, you know, I was skimming it on my phone because I'm a millennial. Um, and so they because I just want to be like, OK, tell me tell me what it is. Tell me, like, is this are you like showing me like some amazing super queer stuff? Like what's going on? Uh, easily a third looking at this pie chart here of these graves are gender ambiguous. Um, this society did not adhere to strictly binary genders as we understand them. Like, um, or their understanding of the yeah. goods that go with whatever gender is totally different than what yeah. we would conceive. And, 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 or, um, there's less importance to this concept of gender. So th the argument here is that there's third gender or there's this sort of non-binary, but what if there's like gradation or what if there's actually not that much value put in yeah, what if like girls get a truck and a dolly? Like yeah, and yeah. and nobody talks about it because like you don't say like oh you got socks and shoes like that like nobody cares. Duh. But so the way this pie chart is is lined up is that some of so, and we will we will put this we'll, on we'll put our the whole thing up because it's very interesting. Um, but so you have male graves, female graves, male and female graves, like I said, multiple individuals, and then gender ambiguous graves. And then horse graves, <laughs> which is the last item. Is and I'm horse just a like, category? Yeah. And I was just like, a horse is not a gender. <laughs> and then I was like, wait, am I, am I intolerant? Like, what's going on? And then I went back and was like, oh, no, you buried a horse. Okay, 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 okay. Um, so <laughs> I identify as horse. Yeah. So that was, like, not ideal. But it's a very cool article. It's a very cool blog post that is showing the, the ways that um, a lot of what we, a lot of what we think we know about sites, especially sites that we studied a while back when it was just like some, it was the framework of a very gender, like yep. specifically heteronormative binary framework of understanding applied to a context that, that probably didn't have those same understandings of, of what the gender binary was. Yeah. Yeah, we just have to snap ourselves out of the idea that what we understand and experience, our framework of perception, is likely totally different than, first of all, likely totally different than anyone else's, but also that that becomes even more the case when you when you have a few thousand years separating you and another person. Well, yeah, and so, um, you know, the Vikings? Yeah. Okay, I love this one just because it's so like, ha-ha, for the people <laughs> who discovered it and made assumptions. But um, more than a thousand years ago in what is now southeastern Sweden, um, a wealthy Viking warrior was buried in a resplendent grave filled with swords, arrowheads, and two sacrificed horses. Oh. Aww. So it, this reflects the ideal of Viking male warrior life, or so many archaeologists had thought. But this woman was a warrior. This woman yes. Viking woman. And not only that, she was likely to have been a respected tactician. So on her lap, she had gaming pieces. Nerd. 20-sided <laughs> <Yeah>. die. <laughs> Little settlers, settlers of Catan tiles. <laughs> um, no, but this suggests that she's the person who was planning battle tactics and that she was a leader. So um, despite the accoutrement of her burial which led people to make the assumption that uh, that this was a man. Um, examination of the skeleton shows 
that this was a female warrior. So get it, girl. Yeah. Well, we just ruined somebody's childhood. There are still awesome dude Vikings. Yeah. No, that is awesome. Well, also we had um, our our girl from um, our home episode six. Yeah, with the the sweet tattoos and the and the the wig. Yeah, she had a shaved head, horsehair wig. She was a person of power. Yeah, yeah. And so you have this idea of like what crusty old white dudes in the twenties thought what was how genders be. Guess what? Not accurate. They don't be that. (laughs) Yeah. Myths busted. <laughs> we come on, everybody. Just bust a myth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, but there man. are tons of other examples from places that aren't in Eurasia. Oh, absolutely. Um, and send us more examples. Forever. Oh my god! Yes, like, let's do just, it. Yeah. Okay. Start a dialogue um, on the Facebook page by all means. That's for for yeah. all y'all to to talk to each other, to discuss ideas, to ask us questions. We check it all the time obsessively. We do. So we we would love to to see you on there. Um, and speaking of that, even though we are a little baby podcast that's just over a month old, we are just flabbergasted. Nope, our guests are flabbered. <laughs> we have flabbered guests. Um, we are flabbergasted at the outpouring of support and enthusiasm that the dirt has had. So thank you all so, so much for listening. We can't believe it. Thank you for commenting and participating on the Facebook page. And most of all, for spreading the word and contributing on Patreon and on our new online store, which is uh, the dirtstore.bigcartel.com. So we're a totally indie podcast right now, and we depend on word of mouth to get new listeners and support so your recommendations on social media and reviews and ratings on apple podcasts are so helpful and we're so grateful thank you so much yeah and um, a very special shout out to the seven people who found us using bing.com we also are appreciators of antiquity (laughs) zing but thank you hello but no actually thank you thank you Thanks, thank Bing. you for your clicks. Thank you for your traffic. Uh, and I recently learned from, you know, somebody with a blog. So we'll see uh, that the first eight weeks that a, a podcast is on Apple is really important for getting the new and noteworthy. So, oh, hey, so that is if, why people yell at you on podcasts to rate and review and subscribe. That's what it's based on. So rate, review and subscribe. Please, please, if you like the dirt, if you want us to keep going, if you want us to put out better and more content, uh, we have such big plans, and we wanna we wanna keep doing this because there's n- there's no shortage of stories to tell. So, yeah. thank you so much for your support, and thank you. We got some shout outs. Thank you to people who have contributed on Patreon. Our site is patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Thank you to Elizabeth, uh, Kaylee, and Chris. Kathleen, other Chris with a K, uh, Martha, Melanie, and Rachel. Yes. Oh, my goodness. You're so wonderful. Thank you. You make me cry. Um, You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, on The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And you can email us. We're thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And on our new website, we also have a contact form if you feel weird about sending us an email on Gmail. What's our new website? Our new website is thedirtpod.com. Well, thanks for listening. We love you. you. Love you. Bye. Bye.